guys. Uh, I'm Tommy. I, <laughs> I'm a covenant member here at the well and go to the Koenig CG and serve on the welcome team. And I am going to read 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 7. We want you to know, brothers, <clears throat> about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to the means as they can, or as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part, relief in the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he, that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This is the word of the Lord. All right, beloved, how are we? Good, good. Jesus is alive, amen? And we don't just celebrate that on Easter, by the way. All right, we celebrate that every day. Hey, I'm excited to jump into our text today. If you've been with us, you know that we are in our generous worship sermon series and looking at our finances and how we can use those for and to the glory of God. And we've been looking at this through the lens of the great commandment. Now, the great commission teaches us that we are to obey everything that Jesus has taught us. Generosity is one of the things that Jesus has taught us. The great commandment, though, doesn't just tell us what we're supposed to do, like the commission does, but it also tells us how we are supposed to do that with our whole heart and our whole soul and our whole mind and all of our strength. In fact, each week we've had this tool that has shown you kind of the four different quadrants, and we've looked through different tools each week. And I've said this more uh, than most series, that these really do build off of one another. I said last week, it's kind of like if you remove one of these, it's like a three-legged stool. It's like you can kind of still sit in it, but it's going to be really difficult to do. And so I'd really encourage you to go and to check these out if you've missed some, because an overemphasis on one can actually lead us into pitfalls and into some very clear areas. But today we're looking at the last of the four quadrants and we're zooming in on the soul. Now, the soul is an extremely complex thing in the scripture. Ironically, not because it's complex in the scriptures, but because of what it is meant outside of the scriptures. Most of us, when we think of the soul, we think of this like ghost form, conscience substance that is inside of us, which is actually very Greek in thought and ironically very pagan in thought as well. The Bible mentions the soul very, very differently. The soul is not the spiritual thing inside of our physical bodies only, though it is spiritual in its element in nature, but it isn't as mystic in that sense. The Bible uses the word soul over 750 times in the Old Testament alone, and it really simply just means you, like your whole being. Okay, who you are is your soul, who you are as a person. So you do not have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. Y'all tracking with that? 
And so we need to shift our thinking because we think we're bodies with souls, but the scripture would say we are souls with bodies. There's something different going on here. Your soul is everything that makes you, you. A couple of really quick examples in Psalm chapter 103, verse 1, it says to bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So all that is within me, your soul is everything that makes you, you. Now, like the heart and like the mind, it can mean our emotion or our thinking, depending on the context. The biblical authors sometimes use those three words sort of interchangeably, but when Jesus made makes it distinct, as he did in the great commandment, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's kind of separating these ideas here. And so, for example, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, our heart involves our emotions or our feelings, and our souls really involve our convictions, the things that drive us to act, why and how we act. An example of this is Deuteronomy 26, 16. It says, this day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. So there's a separation between the understanding here. It's really the distinct essence of who you are. When we use the word imago Dei or the image of God, this is actually what we're talking about. Your soul is what carries the imago Dei or the image of God. And so therefore it is special because you are unique as a person and your personhood highlights the beauty of God for the world around us to see. You are a soul. In fact, notice language like in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there weren't 3,000 ghosts that were added to the church. You digging? Like there were 3,000 people, but there's an intentionality to say, look, we're not just saying like physical bodies. We're saying that all of them, their souls, their lives, what is going to happen to them after they die, the soul that will last forever, that's what was added into the kingdom of God. So it's not just the spiritual you, though it is in a sense, and it's not just the physical breath that you have in your lungs, though this is a part of it as well, but all of you is your soul. And so what does it mean to love God with all of this, right? Like the fact that we even got to define it would make it pretty hard to love God in this way. How do we love God with all of ourselves? How do we love God with our very lives? Well, we break this down with the tool, and if you could put the soul back up again, there's this idea of our inner being. It's like us at the core, our faith, our spirit, and for the sense of our giving, it is our sacrifice. What does it look like to sacrifice because we believe? In other words, we give a, out of a deep sense of our belief, because deep down inside of us, at the very core of who we are, we really believe in the gospel, and we really believe in the mission of God, and we really want to see the kingdom of God advance. You see, we trust and we love God deeply. This is altering who we are at the core, and then we're giving out of that end. The idea of the soul here is not just true in our financial giving, though that's what we're talking about today, but it's true in any of our disciplines as well. For example, when we read our Bibles, do we read just out of obedience? That's better than nothing, 
right? Or do we engage our heart as well? Or are we reading just to engage our heart and we're missing the rest of the elements so we want to feel good, but we don't want to think good? Or are we reading just so we can have apologetic arguments? Or are we making sacrifices to spend time in the word because we believe this is the word of God? That this is where we find life and joy and where we find the very person of Christ. And so we make sacrifices that we might spend time looking at Jesus's face. Our soul drives us in so many different ways. And so in our giving, we can't just give out of emotion, no, this is good, or even out of an intellectual ascent of his worthiness or even out of obedience to his demand. Part of the reason we give is because we believe. We believe in who Jesus is. You see, the gospel is rooted in our souls, and so we respond in all areas in this way. So what does it look like to love God with our souls, specifically around the idea of giving, and how can we apply this into our Christian life, no matter what realm we may be thinking of? Well, as we zoom into our text, I believe that we see a ridiculously awesome example of loving God with our soul. If you look at the Macedonian church, they disciple our church in many different ways. In fact, as we zoom into verse one, notice this phrase that says that it was the grace of God is why they are giving, meaning some of the reason they're giving is this belief or it's this faith. It came from outside of them, given to them by God. It is a gift of his grace. Grace is a gift. And so if they are giving out of this deep sense of belief, not all of this is actually produced by themselves, though you can help grow your soul, but a lot of this is very much just the grace of God. If we want to grow in soul worship, some of this has to come from Jesus and from his grace, meaning you have to ask God for this, family. Like, do you ask God for more faith? Do you ask God for more belief? is one of the most common prayers that come out of your mouth. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because this is where we grow in soul affection for Christ. What does this grace look like? Well, if you look at the church, it says that they were giving uh, not just according to their means, that's obedience, but they were giving beyond their means, willingly, of their own accord, the text says. They believe so much that they're willing to give as much as they can because something rooted inside of them is telling them that Jesus is worthy of everything, and they believe it, and they're giving out of that end. Now, the language it uses of this church, I believe it's fascinating, like it's worthy of worship as we look at this human example before us. If you look at the text there, beginning in really verse 3, it says that they're experiencing this severe affliction. Now, affliction is bad. Severe affliction is really bad, right? Right? They actually have extreme poverty. Poverty is really bad. Extreme poverty is extremely bad. So these cats ain't got no bread. They broke and they suffering. That's the picture it's painting for us. But contrast that, it says that there's a wealth of generosity and an abundance of joy overflowing from them. Like, what? Uh, Those words don't correlate well, do they? Like, they do not correlate in our minds, or they shouldn't, because normally when there's suffering and when there's poverty, there's depression and wanting, but for them, there's joy and riches. Their money 
and their circumstances did not dictate their joy before God. Don't miss this, y'all, because your money and your circumstances normally dictate your joy, doesn't it? But there was something different about them. Why? And don't you want this? I do. Don't we want this sort of belief that no matter what's happening in the world around us, there is still joy overflowing. We are wealthy no matter our circumstance. They had something that most of us tend to lack. You see, they were redeemed, and that's all that mattered to them. They believed, and their souls were changed, so they had this faith in them. Their circumstance could not encroach upon their faith. Therefore, they were able to rejoice above and beyond their circumstances, and through this, they were able to give beyond their means. You see, they're giving themselves. This is what worship from the soul looks like. We tend to think about sacrificial giving with our souls when we have an abundance, or at least I tend to think that. I think about the amount that we can give, and the more we have, the more it's sacrificial to give in that way. But these words sort of unbind and unwind what we consider to be sacrificial. You see, the Macedonians were giving beyond their means in their poverty, and this was sacrificial giving. This was worship because they were giving with their souls. Look, y'all, poverty is just that. It's poverty, right? You could be the brokest person in the room and still be the most soulful, sacrificial giver and therefore be the richest person in the kingdom of heaven. Do we believe this? God does not weigh our worth in monetary measurements the way that the earth frequently does. He weighs our worth in faith. And two coins in the kingdom of heaven can weigh several tons towards God. Do we believe this? You see, do we give because we believe? Do we pray? Do we read? Do we serve? Do we love? Do we sacrifice because something inside of us is driving us even beyond our obedience or our emotions? We believe. Notice verse three, once again, they gave of their own accord, it says. Though they were willing, we looked at, that's their heart, but this wasn't planned with their mind like we talked about in last week's sermon. It was sacrificial, it was abundant, it was beyond. They just wanted to bless God, y'all. Like they realized that they had an opportunity to honor God and they wanted to do that. Like I've seen that in this church family as well. You see, we often, as Renji even talked about in his video, kind of make this comparison, look to the left and the right, and we miss where God is moving amongst us. At my daughter's birthday party a couple of weeks ago, I was with two CG shepherds, and they just made the very offhanded comment that they had just missed their first CG in four years. They had been leading every week for four years, y'all. Like, you need to go find those people and kiss them. This is sacrificial, is it not? Like, now listen, let's be real. Their hearts may not have always been fully activated in their leading, right? And their minds, maybe they could have uh, uh, used their minds a little bit more to think about what was happening, but they were giving of themselves, and I know them well. It's because they believe in Jesus, y'all. They know him and they want to honor him. They want to serve him. I've seen this from many of our CG shepherds. My gosh, our elders, y'all, are giving of themselves. Bless them. 
like literally go bless them for giving. People who are going overseas who are willing to lay down their life and lay down their riches that other people who do not know about God can hear about the glory of God. This is sacrificial. The person that's discipling person after person after person, even though most of these cats tend to kind of punt their faith and they're still giving their time and their energy, there's something inside of them that's driving them, y'all. The person who shares their faith, even when they look like fools to the world, even when they get mocked for proclaiming the name of Jesus, they still keep proclaiming. There's something more than just obedience there, y'all. There's something that is driving them. They are loving God with their souls here. The person that's been serving in children's ministry for over five years now, y'all need to go bless them for real, for real, right? They believe there's something inside of them that's moving past just obedience. And what we can do if we are those people is go, well, I don't believe enough. The Macedonians didn't believe like Jesus believed, but they believed enough where it was moving them. And there are many people who are moving because of the gospel of God in their lives. Praise God. Praise God for them. Now listen, listen, don't let Satan take and twist these words here either. Like if you're serving and you need a break, that's okay, right? So that's not what I'm saying here. It's okay to be tired. Like it's okay to step back in these different moments. But I have seen so many people give to Jesus because they love Jesus and they want to bless his church. They're doing these things through the highs and through the lows, even when they don't feel like it. Gosh, Would you bless people like this, y'all? You see, they're showing you a reflection of your King Jesus who serves because he believes in this. Paul says that this giving was an evidence of the grace of God. He says it in verse one, verse six, and in verse seven. It means that their generosity was a part of this gospel that was setting in and it was engaging in their soul. And when that happens, it tends to permeate all of who you are and it becomes a powerful witness, family of God. Notice how almost unimaginable their souls were engaged here. It goes on in verse four, you see it there on the screen, where it says they were begging to be a part of this. That word begging is actually normally translated as the word praying. So they were praying to Paul that they could give. What? I never experienced that as a pastor. I ain't never had somebody praying that they could give, right? And they weren't just begging. It says they were begging earnestly is the word before there. Notice how Paul is putting all of these uh, adjectives before the words he's describing to show you how much of themselves were engaged. They desired so deeply to take part in the work of the church. Listen, in the gospel, the man with leprosy that fell down before Jesus and begged him to heal, that's the same word there. And that's the image that Paul is creating. There's a desire to be used by God. These cats believed, y'all. Giving from the soul, be it money or anything, it's actually really powerful. Now, I want to take a really quick pit stop here because I know when we talk about the soul and faith and belief, it kind of gets a little bit deeper than the heart and the mind and the obedience at times because we begin to feel bankrupt in these areas. And so I want to look at the tool once again. And would you look at the pitfall here with me? It says, sometimes I see entitlement creep in or I feel like I'm owed something because of all the sacrifices that I am making. 
Listen, the person that majors in sacrifices but minors on the heart or the soul or the strength, there's a ton of danger here too, y'all. Just because this is a spiritual element and it's so beautiful, if we overdo this at the expense of the others, there can be pain that creeps in. You see, entitlement or hurt can begin to creep into this person because there's a giving of all of ourselves. And when we do that, we feel like we're owed something. We feel like somebody should give us something. And so we serve for six months, and then nobody tells us thank you, and we made this sacrifice, but now we're hurt by that sacrifice because nobody acknowledged it. Listen, if we focus on our sacrifice more than we focus on why we're sacrificing, then the question has to be, were we sacrificing for God or were we sacrificing for ourselves? For the accolades that come, even for obedience so we can look like good Christians, but we don't believe like good Christians. You see, there's an important thing we gotta dissect here in that way. This can create entitlement. Like, I gave you so much, therefore I should. And if that becomes our heart, then we can actually mistakenly spiral outside of ourselves into our own self-condemnation. You see, the sacrifice shows it's for us, not for God. And we have to realize this. Now, I'm not just randomly throwing hands at y'all, all right? Like, we all do this, don't we? At least I do it, okay? When I'm prepping this week, I'm like, man, I do this all the time. We each allow this to creep into our lives because it's the backdoor way to get us to doubt our faith, to get us to deconstruct the faith itself, and to get us to leave the church or leave the person of God. And so the enemy wants to sneak in and create this doubt in our lives. Can I give you two guardrails for that doubt, family, so that we don't fall into entitlement or burnout or hurt in our sacrifices? First of all, if this is truly for the Lord, okay, like if this is really for God, while gratitude is always appreciated, and we should be some of the most grateful people on earth, y'all, as Christians, like would you bless people that are blessed? Would you tell them thank you? Like would you honor them, bless them, tell them what God thinks of them, and be the person of God to them because when they're serving you, their father is pleased, so you, like their father, should say thank you. This is good. Gratitude is appreciated. We should be grateful people. But even if no one shows you the person of God, family, God is the literal person of God, meaning he will see your work and he will honor it in heaven. Do you believe this? Do you believe where we're going? That this earth is not our home? That there's more than what is right before us? If you go for 40 years serving and giving and no one notices, that's not possible because God is a someone and God notices, meaning if you go for 40 years and no human notices, the God of the universe notices and it is credited to your account, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you believe this? Is heaven true or are we just up here playing, y'all? painting beautiful pictures that aren't actually true. Is this fairy tale or is this fact? I believe this is fact, that we're going to the kingdom one day. And so the only person whose opinion truly matters, God's, he sees it, family. We can guardrail if we believe that. We avoid hurt if our souls really believe that this is the greater purpose. There's a reward coming. So the the guardrail, the barrier, is that we preach the truth of the gospel into our own souls that our sacrifice 
over the long haul is worth it. And if we preach that, then we can endure, even if humans try to consume all of our sacrifices like they did to our King Jesus. Y'all dig? Okay, can I confess something to y'all actually? This is the one that I struggle with by far the most. This is the pitfall that I find myself in extremely frequently because I freaking love this church, y'all. Like, I love it. And because of that, I tend to sacrifice for this church. And I want to sacrifice more and more for God's people. And I'm making a real confession, not saying, oh, look at how I sacrifice. I really do love the church. I would die for this church, y'all, gladly. You don't even have to prod or to prime me to do that. I love y'all. This isn't empty words when I say that. I mean that. I never want to be away from here or be away from the people of God because I believe this, y'all, which is why I get so hurt and why I allow entitlement to creep in or why I allow burnout to creep in because at times people just wound you, y'all, Either intentionally, that sucks, or unintentionally, that's the norm. They don't even realize it, and so they can't even repent of it. And so this is what we do to each other. I have probably done that to you, have I not? Where I'm not meaning to hurt, but a mistaken word or an overlook of something that's going on can create hurt if we're not careful and if our eyes aren't fixed on God. You see, pastoral ministry or serving of any sort, God, it hurts, y'all. In fact, Paul, at the end of this very letter in 2 Corinthians, he lines up all the ways that he's been physically afflicted. And he says, caring for the church of God is worse than all of those things combined. It's harder, not worse, it's harder. It's heavier to carry in that way. But I can endure when I realize that ultimately this is for God and no one else. The Macedonians disciple us in that, y'all. And so realize what they see. They see this is for the favor of God, it says there, as they continue in this verse. In fact, in verse 5, it says, they're doing this in that way. You're giving, you're serving, you're loving. It is for God mainly. Accolades are nice, y'all, and they can even sustain us for a while. Don't get me wrong. They're the physical reminder of God to us. But at the end of the day, this is for God and no one else. Do you believe that? Do you believe in the kingdom that is to come? And if he's real, and if our souls believe that he is real, then we can rest in this, y'all. We can rest in who God is and what he's done for us. In fact, this is why we call money a tool. Money is really like binoculars into our heart that show us what or who we worship. And if we're holding on, the question is, do we really believe in this kingdom to come? And if we're not giving away, do we really believe this? And the same is true with our time and our talents. Has the gospel truly taken root? Now, how in the world do we grow in this? Because, once again, if left to ourselves, we feel the bankruptcy in our souls, do we not? Like we realize that it's not just our hearts that are prone to wander like we just sang. It is our souls that barely even believe in the first place. How do we grow in this? Because none of us serve or none of us love our neighbor or share our faith or disciple our children or work as unto the Lord or teach or preach or lead or love or give like this at all. If we look at all of our motives, is any of them really engaging the soul? Now listen, if we begin comparing ourselves to others, then we can feel condemned right now, like we're not enough. 
And that's what a lot of us are tempted to do. Rather than comparing ourselves to the righteousness of Christ and then realizing that he gave us his own righteousness, we compare to one another and we feel condemned by that. Or we compare to one another and we feel inflated because we feel like, yo, I am giving with my soul. I'm giving 40% and therefore I'm better than the person around me, not realizing that we're only looking at one area where we're inflated over there, but we're probably bankrupt in other areas of our soul as well, where other people outpace us by a mile. And we could feel inflated or condemned if we are not careful. So how do we cultivate the soul? Well, notice several things in this text as well. First of all, Paul points out the other church of Corinthians not to rebuke them, but as a sense of encouragement. You see, he wasn't showing them, the Macedonians, to be like, man, y'all are dumb. Like, y'all rich, they broke, and they outgiven y'all. That's not what Paul is doing here. We know this because look at all the honors that he bestows upon them in verse 7. He says that their faith or literally all of their knowledge or all of their speech or all of their earnestness or all of this love, you are good examples. So all he's doing is helping them see another example. Listen, y'all, comparative righteousness is no righteousness at all. You hear that? Would you please believe that, y'all? Comparative righteousness, feeling better or worse than another human is no righteousness at all. Comparing your actions, though, to learn how we are to look more like Christ is really, really good. Like, we should desire feedback and growth and opportunity for more development. If we're comparing so that we can learn how to grow, then that's a good thing. But if we're comparing to find our righteousness or our condemnation, then this is where pain comes in for you and for others. We're missing the point here. So Paul says, hey, y'all are doing great. Like God is at work in this church. I can see it. That is awesome. Grow here as well. Because if you grow here as well, you'll experience more of the grace of God, which will make you more like Jesus, which will make you come alive more. And I want your life in Christ. He's helping them see where they can grow in their soul affection or love You get more Jesus when you sacrifice more, and I want you to have more of Jesus, therefore I'm encouraging you to more sacrifice. That's what Paul is doing here. So you can grow, family of God, in your soul worship by mimicking and asking from others who you see doing this well. It's why you should be frequent around the people of God in general, but specifically the people of God who imitate Christ really beautifully. Because when you're around them, you're able to see the person of Christ and is able to disciple you to pursue that as well. The second way that we grow in soul love, though, and by far the biggest way, y'all, it's really simple, and we've said this a hundred times at the well, and I pray you would never grow tired of hearing this as a church. You just fix your eyes on Jesus, y'all. You see, right now, if we're looking internally only and we're thinking about our bankruptcy, then we can fall condemned. But if you fix your eyes on Jesus, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. So if you feel like I'm not doing this well and you're starting to feel that emotional pull, you're looking to the wrong person, you're looking to yourself rather than Christ who can pull you up and elevate you into the very throne room of God. You see, if we are by ourselves, y'all, then we are stuck by our own ability to be righteous on our own accord, which is way too low for our souls. We know it and we feel it. If we look to the righteous one, though, y'all, we have righteousness unlimited, 
Like his righteousness never runs dry. He is the eternally perfect one and is able to cover us by his grace. Notice what it says here. It says that they gave themselves to God first and then they gave to us. They saw this as favor from God and this was a grace of God. So all of this is about who? God. It's not about their gift. It's not about what their gift did. It's not about anything else. It's about the person of God. You see, the Macedonian church actually likely surprised Paul because he may have known their impoverished situation. You see the illusion of that in verse four and maybe even was telling them not to give. Like, y'all are poor, don't give. Let me get from the Corinthian church. They loaded, right? But they're like begging him like, no, we wanna take a piece of this as well. We wanna take part in the kingdom of God. Evidence, verse five, they gave of themselves, it says, AKA their soul was engaged in giving, all of them. So they gave of themselves. And once they did that, y'all, giving money was significantly easier to do. If you struggle giving money, maybe you haven't given all of yourself to the Lord yet. Maybe you're holding on to pieces, and that's why it's hard to let loose this material possession for a spiritual one. You see, focus on Christ, though, it loosens those chains of our own self-worship, and it allows us to worship someone who is bigger than us and who can satisfy our souls. You see, when we see Jesus, we're willing to give everything because we see that he is already giving everything to us. Listen, y'all, if your souls believe that marriage is what will satisfy, then you will give everything that you have to get married, right? If your souls believe that work is what will satisfy you, that work is the purpose of why you exist, therefore you put all of your what? Sacrifice into work. You will sacrifice your family and time and even your own health to work because you believe that work is what will satisfy when in reality it's Jesus. Our souls are speaking. We just have to read them and listen to them, if we believe that uh, pleasures on earth or social justice or beautiful mercy or preaching or teaching or doctrine or friendships or emotional stability, if our souls believe that anything else is supreme other than Christ himself, then we will inevitably fall bankrupt, y'all. None of those things have a big enough budget to fit what our souls need. We need Jesus the endless rich one that can give what our souls desire. Listen, family, as we look to Jesus, our soul activates. If we try to muster the grace of God on our own, it will not work. But if we long for Jesus and if we fix our eyes on Jesus and if we see what he has sacrificed, then our sacrificial giving just becomes a response of what Christ has already done. Look, even in this context, family, isn't Jesus the one that is the greater example for us? You see, the Macedonians were facing severe affliction, but Jesus' affliction that he faced was significantly worse. You see, Jesus was pain to the point of death, even death on the cross. They were experiencing this uh, extreme poverty, but Jesus experienced it all the more for he was born in a place where animals eat their food, y'all. The rich one became poor so that through our suffering, we might be rich in him forever. Jesus is actually the better example for us as well. For in verse seven, they excelled in their faith and their speech and their love. But didn't Jesus excel that much more than the Macedonians did? You see, Jesus had this perfect faith and he had an abundant love for his church. Yet Jesus died doing what, church of God? Jesus died giving, giving his blood,
Jesus died sacrificing because he believed, y'all. He died giving away of himself so that you and I might be redeemed. And so if we try to muster up this soul faith or this worship, it won't be enough. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus and what he has done for us, then naturally our hearts will begin to worship. And we don't need to prime and pump some emotion or some obedience. We just see Jesus and we move out of response, y'all. Is your eyes fixed on Jesus? Are your eyes set on Christ? So how do we grow in our soul giving of our time, our talents, our treasures? Y'all, ultimately, it's really simple. Stop looking at yourself. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And as you fix your eyes on Jesus and as we love him, then our focus on precious Christ will shift our affections from this earth to the one that we're going to. Listen, the more we look to this earth, y'all, we become like the Israelites in the desert that was longing for Egypt. You see, this earth can provide just enough where you feel a little bit of momentary satisfaction, but it gives you just enough that you won't starve to death. But if we look at the promised land that is to come and we realize where we are going, our hearts will endure the desert. And whether we are in affliction and poverty or wealth and joy, it don't really matter because we know whose we are and who we're getting at the end. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Well, family. Amen. Amen. Hey, I love you guys like crazy. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your gift of love and your gift of grace. Precious Christ, I pray that you would help us to believe, God. In fact, I don't want to move with fancy prayers or eloquent words or try to spin the right sentences together here. We just need you, Christ. We just need you. And so God, I pray for those in this room who do not have a relationship with you. They've been searching for all of these other things to satisfy. I pray that they would see that nothing satisfies like you, Christ. That this longing that they feel, not just in their hearts, not just in their minds, not just in their works, but in their souls. That that's their soul saying, there's more. There's more. There's more. Friend, there's more. Jesus, the one with endless treasures, can be yours and you can be his. And Father, I pray for all of us who have surrendered our lives to you, who have said, we know there's more. There's more. There's more of you, Jesus, and we desire it. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. You are inexhaustible, the scripture says. We will never come to an end of who you are. And so God, I pray that we would continue to seek you with all of our heart, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. And God, by your grace, would we seek you with all of our souls. We pray this in your precious and your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.